Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday april 11th 2008 this week episode 77 comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe here with me in the studio is the wingman chris boisel Good afternoon, Jeff. Good day, Chris. Thanks for joining me. My co-host, Cliff Slotnick, is out of the country this week. I don't think he'll be joining us, but you never know. If he does, we'll pull him in. And it looks like we have our uh, technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line here. Let's see if we got some of his intro music, Chris. Okay, good afternoon, Dieter. Are you still with us? I'm with you, and I'm here in the background, Richard Wagner. Okay, all right. I had to listen to that when my father listened to it. I'm not uh, all, I, I like Beethoven better. Okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll bring the Beethoven back, but we thought That's we'd have right. a, a little change of pace have, for you. I have a better sound system over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, welcome, and thanks for joining us, Dieter. We'll bring you back Pleasure. in from time to time. Sure. All right, today's segments will include the microband trivia question, Mr. John Tiffany is here today with us from Tiffany Bader Environmental. We also have our IE Connections What's News segment with Glenn Fellman. Glenn will also be jumping in from time to time to help me out with some follow-up questions for John. And we will then have the roundtable where we'll bring everybody back in to round things up. We'll bring in the good doctor. We'll ask some questions from uh, our listeners. And uh, the Z-Man... Myself and the wingman have been working hard on the www.iaqradio.com website. We've been adding a little blog every week after the show, and we encourage listeners to check that out. Before we get started today, though, most important thing, or one of the most important things we have to do is thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, to contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. 
You can then just uh, press 1 and join the show. Nowadays, they're making it a little easier. They've got some caller recognition Chris was telling me about here. If you have questions about that, you can email me, and we'll help you make sure you can get on and uh, log in with questions. You can also just stream, you know, stream the show straight from the Internet without downloading, without calling in and all that stuff. Um, you can also download the TalkShoe software if you want to text message into us and uh you know you can also download shows at a later date they're all archived you can go through our iaqradio.com website and there's a link that says go to the show we appreciate suggestions we'll answer questions take requests you can email me at joe.hughes that's spelled h-u-g-h-e-s at iaqtraining.com or cliff zlotnick that's z-l-o-t-n-i-k at unsmoke.com you can also get iaq council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz after the show last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right since cliff's not here today i'm going to do the honors with the micro band trivia question and last week we had two questions the first was grace kelly was famous as an actress and the Princess Grace of Monaco. What was she selling in her first commercial? And we did have a correct answer. John Tenorio had the first correct answer, and uh, Princess Grace was selling insecticide in that first commercial. The second question was related to a sound clip that was played, and Paul McMahon identified the sound clip as the ride, yeah, oh, got to get the cheer in there, ride of, I want to make sure, Valkyrs, Valkyries, I want to make sure I get that right, thank you, wingman, from the movie Apocalypse Now, and the composer was Richard Wagner, ironic, isn't it, Chris, you're good, you're good, all right, Chris, the envelope, please, for this week's question. All right, this week's question is, what was the name of the first indoor air quality course taught at the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center? How many days long was the course, and who was the first instructor? So we have a three-part question this week. What was the name of the first IAQ course taught at Merck? How many days long was the course, and who was the first instructor? All right, we've got some... Uh, Intro music, or should I do the bio first, Chris? What do you think? Let's do the bio first. Our first guest today is Mr. John Tiffany, our only guest. John is a pioneer in the in indoor air quality practice, and when I say pioneer, uh, most anybody that has been doing indoor air quality for a long time probably took a course sometime back in the early 90s that John was one of the instructors at or the instructor at. He served as the technical director for 15 indoor air quality courses at the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center. We'll abbreviate that as Merck. He was the chair of the American Industrial Hygiene Association's Indoor Environmental Quality Committee. He is the AIHA's liaison to ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and was the chair of ASHRAE's Environmental Health Committee and a member of the Standard 62 Ventilation for Acceptable IAQ Committee. John is also a founding member of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. If we use the uh, acronym ISIAC, you'll know we're talking about the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. John also 
was instrumental in uh, starting the er, serving on committees to work with the national IAQ 92, IAQ 93, IAQ 94, and IAQ 98 conferences through ASHRAE. He was on the conference steering committees, and he was a conference advisor for the International Indoor Air 99 in Scotland and Healthy Buildings 2000 conference in Helsinki. Both John and his partner, mechanical engineer Howard Bader, are consultants to various EPA regional offices on the Tools for Schools IAQ program. John has academic degrees and he has a Master's of Science degree in Environmental and Occupational Health from Hunter College and a BS in Chemistry. Welcome, John. Do we have you on the line? Hello, John. Hello. Welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. We uh, picked that song out, and I, I heard the part that said, you know, put your hand in the air. I'm assuming you've put your hand in the air quite a few times with all of your volunteer activities here, John. Uh, well, that's one way to put it. <laughs> well, let's get started with um, how did you get started in, in doing indoor air quality investigations, and, and when did you get started? I got started back in 1998 uh, doing uh, like sick building syndrome investigations where I went out as an industrial hygienist without a mechanical engineer and kept getting frustrated because I realized that a lot of the problems came down to something with the HVAC system and I just didn't have the expertise to uh, really figure that out. Uh, what I tried to do was hook up with mechanical engineers, but that was easier said than done. Let me just check real quick. That was 1989 or 98? Uh, 88. 88. Okay. So back in 1988, and you were trying to hook up with mechanical engineers to help you out, and you were having problems. How did you and Howard get together? Well, I meant Howard teaching a course. Uh, actually, that was in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey. The University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey sponsored the course. It was a five-day course on indoor air quality, so it was quite a commitment to uh, come and attend the course. And I realized that Howard had a, a lot of hands-on experience dealing with mechanical systems. So I hooked up with him in 1990, and then we formed our company in 91. And you two have been working together ever since. Uh, that's correct, John. Okay. And what prior to starting in the indoor air quality world, what kind of work were you doing, John? Uh, mostly asbestos. I started up in that in uh, 86. Oh, so you were one of the early uh, pioneers in the asbestos industry, too. I didn't know that. I guess... I wouldn't really call it a pioneer job because by that time, various regulations have been set out uh, prior to, like, 85, it really was the Wild West out there in asbestos land. Uh, when, 
I guess the first OSHA regulations came in in the mid-'80s, was it, or is it a little later than that? It was in the mid-'80s. That's correct. I see. Well, let's move on to uh, your your work at Merck. Uh, the minute, and we have the thing they call the acronym police here. And every once in a while, uh, the wingman will hit me with a siren if I use too many acronyms. So, Merck, um, for those of listeners that aren't familiar, is the Mid Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center. Some of our listeners are familiar with work. Others are not. Are Merck, and others are not. Can you tell us a little bit about how Merck got started and what was the intent there? Yeah, it was set up in 1992 uh, to do training courses on indoor air quality where it wasn't just, I mean, one of the courses was a general overview on indoor air quality. That's what we started with. But uh, from teaching that five-day course, I realized that I would like to have specialization in like a course just on mold or a course just on mechanical engineering and reading blueprints and courses like that. So we eventually, within a year or two, moved from just a general overview course to um, those specialized courses. And was this some kind of a consortium of different universities? I don't know myself exactly how it was formed. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it was through the University City Science Center, which does have a consortium of about 20 universities from the Delaware River Valley. Well, how many people did you have attending those early classes? You're, we're back in the early 90s, and indoor air quality wasn't as big of an issue as it is now. How many people were attending those courses? Well, actually, we had a pretty good attendance, ranging from like 30 to 50 people, uh, mainly because we were the only show in town uh, nationwide teaching these types of courses. So as opposed to now where there's a lot of training that goes on, you know, throughout the country, there really wasn't like that. So people wanted to, you know, I'd run into problems with indoor air quality issues and either doing consulting work or as building facility managers, and then they wanted to, uh, you know, find out some more about that. What were some of your fondest memories of doing those courses, John? Uh, I guess the interaction with not only uh, industrial hygienists but mechanical engineers and facility people where they would come and ask pretty detailed questions and uh, and then you'd have to think of the right answer. So I'd say that. I guess early on you realized this was a, a team effort oftentimes solving these IAQ problems and uh, that was probably a part of the the learning is having all those different people from different uh, segments of the industry coming in and peppering you with questions. That had to be tough. Yeah, and one one thing we did that I really enjoyed was we did a, the, an indoor air quality investigation in, in a number of the courses of the actual training center, which had horrible air quality. <laughs> <laughs> so we kept, like, hoping they would never fix it. So we could, you know, make it an interesting uh, part of the courses, I which see. they never did fix. They never fixed it, huh? <laughs> so, nope. so your hands-on was uh, real world, and um, you, you were able to show them repeatedly that uh, there were certain issues. I'm assuming some of them were ventilation-related. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the issues were? 
Yeah, the, it, it was primarily ventilation-related. We, we were lucky to have the blueprints for the, uh, for the building, so we could use that as part of, you know, the training. But they had an outdoor intake by the loading dock, and um, not only that, they had a dumpster right next, garbage dumpster right next to the outdoor intake, so it was kind of a double whammy for, for odor issues. Um, they also had an additional main uh, mechanical room where they, they really didn't have any outdoor air coming in. The damper was closed off for that. Some excellent uh, firsthand looks at problems that caused these indoor air quality problems right in the classroom. Well, what happened to Mark? What, what went wrong, John? Or maybe nothing went wrong. It just its time had expired or whatever, but it's no longer around, or at least I'm not familiar with I don't see much about Merck anymore. What happened there? Uh, in 2005, it lost its primary funding. Uh, a, a new administration came in for the University City Science Center and basically said, well, this isn't what we want as part of our format for the University City Science Center program, and they pulled the plug on funding, which they had done for 13 years. We also had funding from the EPA Region 3, um, but that wasn't enough to keep the uh, Merck up and running. I see. And then I'm, I wanted to move on to your activities with the American Industrial Hygiene Association. How did you get started working with AIHA? Well, once I got my degree in industrial hygiene, it, it is the premier organization for industrial hygienists, um, and I joined up in 87 with AIHA and, you know, attended the conferences, became a national member at, at that year and so on. And you never went and got your uh, CIH. I'm just I'm curious. I didn't see that on there. Or did you? Uh, do you have that? And I'm not aware of it. No, I, I don't have it. Part of the problem is I specialized in indoor air quality early on. And to be honest, I kind of forgot or didn't apply the general IQ, or I'm sorry, the general industrial hygiene knowledge that you use. And by the time I sat down and decided I would like to try taking it, I realized I'd have to almost go to graduate school all over again. <laughs> so it was just a matter of you had kind of specialized in another area and it uh, really would have been too much, uh, a lot of work to go back and try and get that. But you were still instrumental in working with AIHA and their Indoor Environmental Quality Committee. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the activities that um, that committee takes on? Yeah, they, they're the the uh, committee that handles anything on IQ issues, particularly, well, relating to not only the conferences, the annual conferences that are held, but, for example, when OSHA had a proposed standard on indoor air quality, then we testified representing AIJ at that uh, hearing, which uh, was taking place in 94. That was the year I was chair of the committee, so uh, I got to go to that hearing and testify for AIJ, which uh, the position statement was written up by the Indoor Environmental Quality Committee. And were you was AIHA in favor of that? Reg that uh, for the listeners that aren't aware, that regulation never 
went through, I guess it uh, was proposed and it was never finalized. Was AIHA in favor of the regulation or were they opposed? Oh, they were in favor. They were in favor, and uh, I, I believe, if I recall correctly, and maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, there was a lot of uh, mm, opposition from, I guess, the tobacco industry, and I, I don't know, were the building owners and managers also opposed to that? Uh, it was more the tobacco industry. In fact, one of the preparation I had to do for testifying was to figure out all the various Surgeon General statement on tobacco because the back then it was controversial to ban smoking in buildings and that's what the OSHA proposal called called for the concept of environmental tobacco smoke or secondhand smoke impacting people was heavily contested by the tobacco people let me, uh, if you don't mind, John, let me pop over to Glenn Fellman. I think he wanted to jump in and either ask a question or make a comment. Glenn? Well, I just, it's interesting how far we've come that, uh, you know, environmental tobacco smoke would have been such a big issue. Uh, and, and, and just now 10 years later, here we are, and it's, you know, falling rapidly from pretty much every public place across the country. So it's a good thing to see. It's great, great work that, uh, that that was done back then. I had a comment back when we were talking a little bit earlier about Merck, I hear from people still to this day that those were some of the best training classes they ever attended on indoor air quality. The professors that uh, taught those classes were great people, if I think I'm not mistaken, uh, Harriet Burge was involved, and Mike McGinnis, and Davidge Warfield, and, and a bunch of other people who still to this day are considered some of the, the, the best experts on indoor air quality. My question for John was when he looks around the industry today, what does he see as being um, sort of the best place for indoor air quality training uh, in lieu of having a Merck anymore? Well, I would say IHUA gives what I consider the best course, um, or courses, I should say, on indoor air quality issues. Well, I'm glad to hear you feel that way, John. <laughs> Since I, and uh, I also wanted to mention that Cliff Slotnick also taught with you back in those days. Uh, is that accurate? Yes, that is. Uh, we also had Phil Maury, uh, Bill Turner, um, and really a, a number of, one of the things I didn't want to do was dominate the courses. I wanted to get people, like when we did HVAC, I wanted to get someone like Bill Turner to come on in. When we did mold, it was uh, Phil Maury and uh, people like that who had, you know, a really big name recognition and, and a and a lot of experience in, in those fields. And I also thought Glenn had a, a really good comment there, and actually it kind of read my mind. I, you know, back in the early 90s, OSHA was proposing regulations that essentially were going to make it very difficult to smoke in buildings. And uh, it's kind of interesting how over time that has happened without a federal regulation. Any thoughts about that, John? Or do you think it would have happened quicker or... Do you think it uh, all worked out for the best? Well, one of the, the key uh, statements that came out or, or, or um, was from the EPA Indoor Air Division, where they basically said that secondhand smoke is a problem. And that came out in the mid-'90s, which they got a lot of heat for at that time. Uh, I mean, nobody was contesting about smokers having a problem. 
Well, I shouldn't say that. Actually, the tobacco industry disputed that as well. They kept saying it was, you know, not actually, you know, a slam dunk, so to speak, uh, more or less secondhand smoke, which they just completely uh, uh, ignored as, as an issue and fought anybody who tried to do that. So it was really the EPA, uh, once OSHA's proposed regulation was, you know, not going anywhere, it was the EPA that really took on those issues. So the EPA's statement kind of really got people thinking about the, the secondhand smoke issue, and then it looks like state and local regulations have changed to the point where, you know, anywhere I go these days, you can't smoke in a building, a few restaurants, a few bars, but in general, it's pretty much uh, taboo anymore. Yeah, except in casinos. Ah, good point. Well, casinos, I guess, because uh, I understand three things go together very well, uh, drinking, gambling, and smoking. The state of Connecticut has just ordered that they stop the, the smoking at Foxwood casinos and the other big casinos that are on Indian reservations because the agreements they have with the tribes says that the tribes have to meet the same health and safety standards that are established by the state. So maybe, they'll, maybe the day is coming where the smoke will be out of the casinos as well. We shall see, and I'm sure uh, we'll, see, we'll read about it in IE Connections. All right. Let's uh, move on a little bit, John. We talked a little bit about the AIHA. I'd like to talk a little about your activities with ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and their Environmental Health Committee. What does their Environmental Health Committee do, John? Well, they advise the uh, society, which has 60,000-odd members, so it's a really large organization. Um, primarily, obviously, mechanical engineers, but there's also architects. There are some industrial hygienists uh, involved with, you know, members of the society. Um, but the Environmental Health Committee would, you know, in some cases they would just make comments on various standards and guidelines that came out. In other cases, they would be the, the lead committee, like, for example, on, on Legionnaire's disease, coming out with a position statements on that, uh, as well as secondhand smoke. Now, like. you also worked on the um, ASHRAE 62 committee, and, and I think a lot of our members know that's for ventilation standards, and um, at first it was probably at the time you were working on it was for commercial buildings. Uh, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how difficult it was to get a consensus on ventilation standards and maybe kind of comment on how they've gone, uh, you know, they went down and then have come back up, uh, at least the amount of ventilation required. Yeah, uh, well, it's hard to get consensus on it because one of the things that ASHRAE did, which I think is good, is they had as many stakeholders as possible involved with it, including the tobacco industry, but also like the Home Builders Association, uh, various, thing, various groups like that. Uh, and it's, I wouldn't say unwieldy, but there's maybe 30 to 40 people who are members of that committee, uh, mostly obviously mechanical engineers, but also architects, industrial hygienists, um, medical doctors and tobacco people. So it was hard to come to consensus with so many different conflicting types of uh, priorities. 
I was involved with it in the 90s. And uh, starting in the late 90s, they set up that into commercial buildings, which was entitled 62.1, and then also a separate committee for homes, 62.2. And I did the ventilation rates change in the 90s? Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about how you know, you came to the decisions you came to with respect to those changes. Yeah. Uh, the first standard, 62, came out during the energy crisis in the 70s. So it came out in 1973. So everybody was concerned about energy issues, and they only called for a pretty minimal amount of outdoor air because of having the heating, have to heat and cool it. So they, they called for just five cubic feet per minute or, uh, per person. And then there was a standard in 1981 that said if there was smoking, there should be 15 CFM. But that really didn't go anywhere, didn't get adopted by building codes, for example, which the 1973 standard did get adopted by building codes. And then in 1989, the third version came out, and that was a major change. It called for 15, at a minimum, 15 cubic feet per minute per occupant. For example, that was in classrooms. Um, for office spaces, they called for 20 CFM. For casinos, they called for 35 CFM per person. And they had like 70 different uh, requirements for various CFMs uh, per person based on whether it was a, a prison or, or um, offices and, and so on and so forth. That uh, basically held up until uh, we get to 2001, where that, at that point the committee started looking in more detail uh, at why why do this 15 CFM per person? Where does that actually come from? And the conclusion was is it's why it's good to have outdoor air coming in, that there needed to be a more fixed approach to it. At the same time, the uh, committee decided to write the language as for building codes to get easily adopted for building codes. and. When you take that approach, you take a minimal approach as opposed to kind of a wish list. Uh, so they made a, I wouldn't say a major sea change in the amount of outdoor air, but they lessened the amount um, based on various uh, occupied areas. And I guess they changed the, they made a slight change too in, and I'm trying to recall exactly how this worked, John. You can tell me better. There, you know, you had the 15 CFM was kind of a, a, a ballpark, and now they take into consideration both the square footage and um, I guess the number of uh, is it the number of occupants as well. That that's correct. And how did that? Is that something that was difficult to get um, consensus on? It, it was. There was a number of stakeholders. One of the stakeholders was uh, from the 
representing the EPA, for example, and they were quite concerned about any lowering of the outdoor air requirements, as were a number of other people on the committee. So there, there was like, uh, like a five-year process to come to that consensus. I had a bunch of other things I wanted to talk about, too, but this is interesting to me, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, were you involved at all with the residential side of things, or can you fill us in a little bit on how difficult it was to get, I guess, home builders in general would be one of the stakeholders to agree or to work with you on the residential uh, ventilation rates? Yeah, I was not involved with the residential committee. Uh, Joe Stebrook was involved with that committee, uh, and Max Sherman from uh, both of those are members of ASHRAE and building science people. Um, and it took uh, a number of years to get that out because there was opposition from the uh, home builders. And it's kind of like they almost had um you know, they, they looked and they saw the future because we're seeing home builders now because of the way, you know, the buildings are tightening up. They are actually, I was just in a class this week in North Carolina. They're starting to directly um, bring in outdoor air to these units, a lot of them being in crawl spaces, which was the issue. So it's like almost like they uh, could see the future coming. And I don't know that they're required to do that at this point. Uh, are you familiar with the code in your area and if they're requiring that at this point? I'm not so. I just I just know that they are t taking a more uh, what I would call positive approach to, to dealing with indoor air quality issues, which came directly out of uh, ASHRAE's work. Well, let me do this, John. We uh, typically at the halfway point take a little break, and we're going to have Glenn Feldman do his IE Connections What's News segment. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about ISIAC and uh, EPA and then go into some general questions. So we're going to mute you for just a minute, and we're going to bring Glenn back on for the IE Connections, What's News, and I think we have some intro music for that. Leader of Men, Glenn Fellman, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Good. Good what, what's news, Glenn? Well, I'm going to lead off with something straight out of this week's um, national headlines, but it's an industry-specific program, uh, pointing to the, the economic uh, times that we're in, I suppose. Uh, this came out of uh, Orange County Business Journal. Uh, San Juan Capistrano-based American Mold Guard is calling it quits after going public a year and a half ago. The home building downturn has hurt the company's business of treating new homes to prevent mold and water damage, the company said this week on Tuesday. Uh, their chief executive, Mark Davidson, put out a release, and he said, we're saddened and disappointed by the sudden discontinuation of American Mold Guard's business operations. All of its offices have closed, and its remaining employees have been laid off, according to the release. Now, you got to Keep in mind, in, in 2006, uh, this company raised $16.6 .6 in an initial IPO, and the uh, hurricane 
ravaged Gulf Coast was seen as an opportunity for its chemicals. Uh, they used baking soda to prevent mold from growing on wood and concrete and other materials and the remediation services. At the time it went public, it had 130 workers and 16 service centers across the country. But in the last 12 months, uh, despite doing $6.5 million in sales, they lost $5.7 million overall. And it's one of the big players, one of the real big players we've seen, at least on a national scene, in, in the um, indoor air quality mold slash remediation uh, world. So it's a, a story to keep your eye on um, as, as these tough economic times start to impact industries all over the place. Interesting. I think uh, that's been a topic of discussion here on a couple of the chat rooms. And uh I don't know if it will be the first of several or if it will be the only, although I do want to mention, I'm glad you brought this up, I do have uh, a request to bring a guest on from another one of the big um, you know, public companies that says they're doing just fine. So let's see how that goes, and uh, we'll keep you posted here on IAQ Radio. What else is happening, Glenn? Well, that's a good point. You know, there are a lot of other ones. Service Master, for instance, and then there are just one of many that are out there that are publicly traded companies that uh, it will be interesting to see. I want to give you a little preview of some of the stories we're working on for our May issue. Our April edition is uh, is on the streets. People, if it's uh, not already in your mailbox, uh, check it uh, over the next couple of days. You will have it. So I want to give a little hint about what's coming up next month in May. We are going to be covering a study published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. It found that tiny particles of indoor air pollution that are inhaled and get into the bloodstream affect the performance of blood vessels and potentially increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, particularly among the elderly. I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago on your show when the study first came out. Now we're digging into it deeper. The study also found that when air quality was improved using filters, the subject's blood vessels functioned better. So we're going to be examining the implication of these findings for the future of IAQ. Another story that uh, we've been developing and will appear in our May edition is a California story. The investor-owned utilities in California have issued an energy efficiency strategic plan. And if you haven't seen it, I, I highly encourage you to go out on the website and uh, do, do a Google search. You'll find it pretty easy. It's the Energy Efficiency Strategic Plan. And it could have a major impact on the future of building and design, not just in California, but in the entire country. You know the saying, uh, as California goes, so goes the rest of the country. Industry leaders uh, are already chiming in. The Air Conditioning Contractors of America led the way uh, and were followed by probably another couple dozen organizations who your listeners are familiar with with comments on what's right and what's wrong in the California plan. Those comments are public. They're posted on the Internet. So in our May edition, we'll be taking a close look at what the California proposal really says and what the industry response is and what it could mean for indoor air quality in the future. Now, who was the author of that again, Glenn? Energy Efficiency Strategic Plan? It was produced by the investor-owned utilities in California. Four, four uh, California utilities that are investor-owned produce this, this plan in conjunction with state officials. That should be interesting. Okay, do you have another one for us? That wraps me up for now. Excellent. Let's see if we can bring the good doctor back in. Dr. Dieter, are you? Uh, let's unmute Dieter. Hello, Dieter. How are you? Yes, I'm unmuted, I heard. All yes. right, you're back. Oh. Had to bring your Beethoven back for you, there. Yes, Beethoven. Yeah, that was the the Ritt der Walküren. That was the, the 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 original title in German by Richard Wagner. Yes. 
uh, Dieter, I need you on the trivia, uh, trivia band, or the, help me with the trivia questions. Right. Any, uh, any comments or questions so far, Dieter? We can, well, um, uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people got involved with, yeah, indoor air quality because a lot of people did us favors by screwing up the ventilation systems. I have been doing and looking at ventilation systems and being originally a mechanical engineer and having taught ventilation courses at the University of Pittsburgh, good God, for years, you know, since 1975 or something like that. And there's no, nobody teaches those anymore right now. So <laughs> there will be young engineers coming out who don't know what they are doing. They'll, they'll keep us busy for many years to come, huh? Yes, but... Um, the problem was really that we didn't know how to intelligently bring in fresh air. And a lot of problems, which I quote solved, I solved by adding more fresh air, which of course uh, adds to the utility bill. And since I didn't have to pay that and I'm the consultant, you know, that wasn't really my problem. But I solved the problem. But I guess you can't get something for nothing. It's, it just doesn't work. Yeah, you got air condition in the summer if you want to have 72 degrees in Florida, and you got to heat it in the winter if you want to have 72 degrees in in Chicago or Montreal. So we got to come to grips with that and do it intelligently. And there are a lot of good efforts being made right now uh, to take care of these problems, address them, and solve the problems and. Um, uh, do it as 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 well as we can do it based on engineering principles and and economically too. I mean, you know, you've got the energy recovery ventilators, heat sure. recovery ventilators. So uh, sure, I, I'm sure that's going to be a big part of and this energy efficiency strategic you know, plan. This is, this, this is this is new. To, it it wasn't an issue. Who cared what the mileage was of your car when you pay twenty cents a gallon? Nobody cared. I remember when I came to this country in 1962, I think it was, and I rented an apartment and I had to pay for the heat. You know, and I got every three months, I think I got a bill for something like seven ninety nine. And I sent them $20 and I said, hey, don't bother me. <laughs> Call me again when you need it. Who cared about insulation? Who cared about ventilation? It just wasn't an issue. And that all came with the quote, energy crisis where we did take a look at it and I said, hey, we didn't have to do it in the past. Can we do it and can we do it better than we did before? And of course the answer is yes. That's right. Well, let's, uh, let's get back with John Tiffany and uh, Dieter, we'll, have you, we'll bring you guys back in at the end. Thanks for joining sure. us. No problem. Anytime. All right. Hello, John. Hello, Joe. All right. We got you back. I just had to do a quick check. John, I, I hear a lot, um, I'm going to mention a name here, and, and he's probably your this association's biggest cheerleader, at least that I know. A gentleman by the name of Wayne Baker is a big fan of ISIAC, the international, I want to, I want to make sure I get this right now, the international, oh my goodness, I lost my notes here, uh, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. I want to make sure I get that right. You're one of the founding members of that group. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it was founded and how it was founded? Yeah, it was came out of a, a conference uh, that is at that point and still to this day are held once every three years. 
uh, international air conference, indoor air conferences. And uh, this came out of the 1990 conference, which was in Toronto, Canada. And um, it's primarily uh, researchers and scientists who work on various IQ-type issues. Um, and there's not too many, as they call them, practitioners involved with the committee. So they did make, or with the association, I should say, they, they did make uh, an outreach toward industrial hygienists or mechanical engineers who were not science people, uh, science background people. The primarily uh, research people here would be like Lawrence Berkeley Lab, for example, um, and uh, over in the Scandinavian countries. Now, what, what do you consider to be some of the most important work or accomplishments of ISIAC? Uh, well, th they looked at things like uh, volatile organic, and they're still doing this, the researchers, uh, and then presenting to ISIAC conferences on volatile organic compounds, uh, on mold, um, uh, ventilation, you know, how that impacts uh, productivity. So it's, it's pretty uh, wide-ranging, and again, it's, it's from the research angle. And so a, a lot of times they, they don't come to a conclusion uh, that, for example, on VOCs, there was a lot of back and forth about how, how to approach what is an acceptable level for volatile organic compounds in an indoor environment. And I'm, I'm assuming that, uh, at least I'm hearing, that um, that group would like to see more interaction between the researchers and the practitioners. Is there any effort toward doing that, or are you involved with that still? Well, the, for example, the board of directors, which is like six members, one of them is uh, vice president of practice, and I was actually on the board from 2000 to 2003. It's a three-year tenure to be on the board. And to try and bring in, um, you know, practitioner points. Uh, right now, Don Weeks is on the ISIAC committee representing AIHA, which is what I was doing back in 2000, 2003. Can you, can you think back to any research that was done by ISIAC that kind of changed your thinking a little bit? Oh, they got me again. ISIAC. Well, I did give the full name earlier here. But can you think back to any research that um, kind of changed your thoughts on, on how you were looking at indoor air quality problems or maybe made you have a different emphasis? I would say with the volatile organic compounds uh, and then also some of the productivity-type issues with uh, ventilation. Uh, and I think what we have to realize is that ISIAC didn't sponsor the research, but they brought together the lead researchers to present at their conferences and also to write in their monthly journal, which is called Indoor Air. And which uh, is an excellent journal, by the way. And I think it's probably, you know, if, if there was one thing that I wish I could 
could see facilitated, it would be the transfer of the information that I get as a member of ISIAC through the journal, which is wonderful, to the to the uh, the general practitioners out there doing investigations or assessments or even remediation, because it's just a wealth of information, and I I'm afraid too few people realize it's there. It's it's great stuff. Well, it sounds like uh, something we need to work on, and uh, maybe between the three of us, and I know we've got Wayne and uh, Don Weeks and others trying to, you know, trying to do that right now. John, let me uh, move on a little bit. Uh, what? Let's move to the EPA Tools for Schools program. I know you've been pretty involved with that program. How is that program coming along as far as school districts implementing the program, and, and what have been some of the obstacles about to to getting school districts to implement that program? Well, it's, it's getting much more acceptance with schools across the nation. Uh, the major obstacle is there's so many, usually it's the facility people that are most heavily involved with this, and they just have so many things on their plate with a small staff that it's hard to really get ahead and implement all the various programs that come with tools for schools. Um, so in some cases, the schools uh, nominally take on saying that they're going to enforce various uh, guidelines that are in the tools for schools program. But then when you get to the schools, you find that that's not the case. Uh, and that was one reason why the EPA set up a number of people to go on out and, you know, help the schools kind of, uh, in a nice way, <laughs> help the schools get more involved with implementing the guidelines. I've got uh, a text question, but I also want to, I guess let's combine it a little bit. Well, one question we have is, are there any proposed current legislation to make tools for schools mandatory? Are you familiar with any proposed regulation or legislation on that, John? Uh, not directly. I mean, the state of New Jersey has uh, a regulation for state office buildings, which includes schools, and that just got implemented within the last uh, year, I'm going to say. Well, let me... Um, okay, so there's cool. the, the National Healthy Schools Day is coming up. It's Monday, April 28th, a program put on by the Healthy Schools Network and, and EPA. John, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that program or not. You can comment on it a little bit. Uh, otherwise, I know it's, it's on the uh, on the website. It's uh, healthyschoolsnetwork.org. Uh, Glenn, I'm not familiar with that uh, at this time. I am now. You just mentioned it. It's a great <laughs> program for, for people to, to get involved with, to get to their local school systems. Uh, NationalHealthySchoolsDay.org. Well, let me, let me follow up since we don't have anything forcing schools to do this, John. What do you see that's kind of a common... Uh, thread throughout districts that are successfully implementing the program. What what types of reasons do you see schools actually implementing the program and the ones that are successful? Well, when they, this isn't true for all schools, of course, but uh, when they do have an indoor air quality program uh, problem, then uh, they're much more interested in trying to implement the guidelines. So a number of schools have taken a proactive approach as well. I mean, they don't have problems that are major problems per se, but they're trying to head it off at the pass. So uh, it's kind of a combination of those 
two issues. Let's move on to some some general questions, John. I I um, you know, we we wanted to make sure we talked a lot about indoor air quality and tried not to get too mold focused. But I know you you deal a lot with mold issues, and I'm curious, how has your approach to investigation of mold problems changed over the years, if it has at all? Well, it has. Uh, when I first started working in the early 90s, I didn't know at all what a moisture meter was. And, and you know, obviously had some idea about water intrusion causing these problems. But now, uh, you know, we go out with infrared cameras and uh, moisture meters and so on and so forth. And there's much less testing. I used to, like, throw a lot of testing at these mold issues to try and ferret out where the problem areas might be. Now with moisture meters, it's much more, well, definitive and much quicker to figure out a lot of these things. So I'm doing much less testing. Still doing testing. I would say I do more testing than most of the practitioners out there do because uh, there's been a real emphasis to to de-emphasize sampling and whatnot. But I, I find it uh, a useful part of the investigation, but it's not the only part of the investigation. And what about at the completion of projects, John? I know that, you know, in the past it was uh, common to do a good bit of testing then. Have you cut back on during what some people call now post-remediation verification? Are you doing less testing on those you know, at that point in the project as well? Uh, in a way, yes. I mean, we still do testing. Our firm does testing at the end of projects, but we're not doing as much culture, uh, you know, bioaerosol testing using a um, culture media plate and a, and a viable impactor to collect onto uh, the media uh, because of the time problem. We're doing spore trap sampling and tapeless surface samples primarily to turn around, get a quick turnaround on these, which you, you can't get with culture. You, you just can't speed up that process. It's going to take uh, around eight days to get results. You kind of anticipated one of the texted questions here, what kind of testing you're doing. So now you're going to more um, tape lift type sampling as opposed to swab sampling, more spore trap as opposed to viable. Is that accurate to say? Yes. Yes, it is. Except when there's a, you have a pretty good sense that there's legal issues involved. And due to the um, drawback of spore traps that you can't get down to species level with it for identification, then we're going ahead and doing the, the viable testing as well. Now, I'm just curious. I, I, I've been going through the AIHA's field guide again. I'm putting together some information from that book, and they've got a big section on statistics. And um, I'm curious, because there is less emphasis on testing, how do you determine what is an adequate number of samples on a post-remediation verification, for instance, let's just take it's a residential property. You know, you had a basement that was flooded. Can you give us a rule of thumb? Well, I there's a number of – well, I wouldn't say a number, but there's some practitioners who feel you have to take a lot of samples in those situations or, or any situation post-abatement. 
But the problem is, is people don't want to pay the money for that. So at a minimum, I like to take three samples, uh, say in a basement. Obviously, the bigger the basement, I'm going to take more than that. But at a minimum, I would like to take three, just because I don't want to roll the dice with one sample. Um, I'd like to get it backed up. So you'd like to take three inside or, or two inside, one outside? Do you do inside versus outside comparisons still? Yes, I, I'm talking about three inside. Of course, I'm, I live in New Jersey, and in the wintertime, outside, a lot of times there's, there's snow on the ground, so you're not going to find anything. Uh, in some cases, because people want to have outdoor samples, okay, then we take outdoor samples, but we always note down because you always get low levels, we always note down that due to winter conditions, you're getting very low levels. And then that's where you have to use professional judgment on what's going to pass and what's not going to pass. And an example of that would be if you got, for example, 50 uh, spores per cubic meter outside, uh, or some people call fungal structures per cubic meter, and then inside, you got 200, 300. To me, that's a low level inside in terms of total concentration. Okay. Of course, you also look at the types of molds that you're getting inside versus outside. But again, um, for example, penicillium aspergillus types are, are so common indoors. If I get none of those outdoors during the wintertime, I'm not going to say, uh, say, if it's like 20% of the total, and we're getting like 300 or even uh, 400 uh, spores per cubic meter. I'm not going to fail on that basis. Okay, that's interesting. Now let's go, do you also have a rule of thumb for tape lift samples? I'm, I'm curious, do you still do surface samples at the conclusion of a project on occasion? And what's a rule of thumb for how many would be appropriate on a PRV? Uh, I try to do tape lists as often as, quite frankly, the, the funds allow me to do that. And um, we're looking to keep levels. A lot of labs will do them uh, with trace amounts and then a few spores and then many spores and then on to masses or numerous. Uh, we use as a cutoff many spores. But we would also use, for example, if stachybotrys comes up, even at a trace amount, that that's not acceptable. And that's on your, uh, on your tape lifts and on your air samples? No, that's a good question, Joe. That would be on the tape list. For the air samples, I know some people take an approach, they don't want to see any stachybotrys. If our approach is if one sample comes up with one count of stachybotrys in the air sample that we pass that. Uh, it's where we start seeing it in multiple samples that, you know, two or more, that we're not going to pass it. So if two or more samples have even one uh, raw count spore, let's say, uh, you wouldn't pass that. But if just one of the three you took, let's say, had one raw count spore, you would, you would probably go ahead and pass that? Yes. Okay. And 
John, I've got so many questions for you here. We're running a little low on time. We're going to go a little bit over for for those out there listening in because, you know, we don't get too many chances to speak with people like you. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity, if you would, to go back and, and think back through your long career of doing indoor air quality and working with indoor air quality issues. And, and tell us one good story of a, a project that was either, either interesting or something that occurred on a project that we can all learn a little something from. Uh, maybe I'd like to talk about two projects if I could. That would be great. Um, one of them was uh, involved with an odor in an office building, in fact, three office buildings that were built uh, six months apart, and they were um, newly occupied like 18 months uh, as they came online, 18 months and then 12 months and then eight months. And it smelled like dead fish. Hmm. And people were getting headaches and, and whatnot. And what it came down to, and this was not easy to figure out, it's never easy with an odor. Um, the source of this was, and this was back in the early 90s, the source of it was actually uh, floor tiles, the backing on the floor tiles, which were interacting with the concrete that was still curing. Hmm. It put uh, calcium carbonate as part as a drying agent to try and prevent mold issues uh, on these floor tiles. Uh, and I'm wrong when I said mastic. It's the backing of the floor tiles. Um, and what it does when you get that is it ends up causing a chemical reaction that uh, sets up seven chain alcohols and nine chain alcohols which are not regulated by OSHA, for example, and there's no clear um, toxicological uh, issue here, but it does create these fishy-type odors. So the solution was is to pull up all the floor tiles in these uh, four-story buildings, which were each about 250,000 square feet, pull up all the floor tiles and then seal off the concrete because we found that the odor had driven down into the concrete. We took core samples of the concrete. Um, and that, that was a big deal, obviously. It's um, the first I've heard of, of that type of scenario, so that, that is interesting. And, and was this newer, was it 12 by 12 floor tile? Was it, what, what era of construction are we looking at here? It was 12 by 12. It was yeah. 12. And you had another project that was of interest. Yeah, you and I were discussing this uh, earlier uh, before coming online. And this was a case where there had been a plastic uh, fire, well, smoke, caused when people had inadvertently put on the uh, cleaner for the oven without realizing that there were plastic uh, utensils stored in there. So that creates a, a terrible odor. They, left the house and then came back after 12 hours and it was full of smoke and, and so on. Um, and the remediation crew that came in pumped a lot of ozone into this situation to try and deal with the odors. And they ended up causing another odor, uh, which we were able to subsequently doing a, an aldehyde scan in, in various rooms of the house came back with significant levels of formaldehyde. 
um, ranging from one to two parts per million. And you can smell formaldehyde at like zero point, well, 50 parts per billion. So it was pretty, pretty strong odor. Sure. And it was, and the solution was all the porous materials had to get tossed because they had absorbed the odor. So the reaction with the ozone and, and whatever the um, byproducts of the combustion, I guess, ended up with a, a formaldehyde odor in there and, and formaldehyde being present. Yes. That's an interesting... And I, I had... Actually, it was due to research coming out of ISIAC that led me to do an aldehyde scan because Charlie Wexter, who's one of the lead researchers on effects of ozone and chemical byproducts that are formed uh, by ozone had always emphasized how formaldehyde is formed by that. Now, I have been involved with other smoke-related uh, projects where that really, which ozone was used, and that wasn't an issue. So I'm not trying to give the idea that every time you use ozone, you cause this problem. John, we're going to go to what we call the roundup. We're going to bring Glenn and Dieter back in to ask you a few questions of each, you know, we can ask questions of each other. And I just want to point out a comment from uh, one of our listeners that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to definitely uh, concur with, and that is that uh, this industry still needs guys like you out there teaching IAQA courses or IAQ courses in general. And hopefully you'll still continue to be out there teaching some of the newer people coming out as time goes on. Well, thank you. Right, we're coming back for the roundup. We went a little over today, but that's why we say the rules have changed. We can do whatever we want here, and we appreciate John Tiffany sticking around with us. Also have uh, Dr. Dieter unmuted and Glenn Feldman. Let's go to Glenn first. Any final comments or questions, Glenn? Oh, just a quick question, uh, maybe an opinion back from John. You know, John, we followed so many movements over the years. The, the building systems approach was the, the big thing back in the late 80s and 90s, and, and then there was the mold uh, is gold kind of thing that came through. Now, the last couple of years, everything is the green building movement, green, green, green. What's your comments about the <coughs> green building movement, um, and what's been your experience? Has it been positive, or do you have concerns about how the IEQ is being maintained in those buildings? Well, certainly, uh, Glenn, you're right about that being a big issue now, green buildings. Uh, my problem with it is not so much how IQ is uh, being done in the buildings, because they're taking a pretty good approach to it. Uh, it's the testing that they're requiring um, for new buildings, particularly, because they're no longer going to be doing it for existing buildings uh, starting uh, next year. It's based on the state of Washington protocol, which came out in the late 80s. And I think it's a real limitation, uh, testing for VOCs, uh, testing for 
um, for PC, which was connected with off-gassing from carpets, which the carpet and rug industry now has really eliminated that as a problem. Um, and I just don't find them very relevant to what might be going on in the building. Well, maybe I could have a follow-up on that, John. What would you find relevant as uh, a protocol or some uh, any type of testing that should be required when these new green buildings come on the market? Well, that's a difficult decision to make because you can't be you cannot be site specific because it would be all over the place. Um, they have to set a national or international guideline. But I, I would like more of a building system approach. I mean, they do have some of that in there. They certainly go into ventilation in, to a large degree. Um, perhaps maybe some mold testing because I have seen that as a problem with, with some new building construction. Um, and probably you're going to have to stick with the state of Washington type of testing because it's kind of out there and uh, it has been around for a number of years. Dr. Dieter, any questions or comments? Yeah, <clears throat> well, I think with this whole indoor air uh, uh, issue, uh, it's, it's difficult because we are looking at very low concentrations. We are on the bottom, on the left-hand side of a dose-response curve. We are, yeah, we are looking for concentrations which, quote, have no effect on, on the person, including very sensitive persons. And uh, I think we can talk for hours and hours. You know, if I find one ppm or two ppm of VOCs in a house, uh, what does that mean? Uh, it's a tough one to answer. And you know, VOCs can come from a hundred different uh, sources, including your coffee machine or the eggs or whatever you are, uh, and, and fruit, whatever you are processing in your kitchen. There may very well be VOCs, uh, so it's it's tough to legislate that, and it's tough to look at them and sort it all out. And I said, well, here is one that shouldn't be there. You know, on the other hand, if I find a lot of stacky buttress in a house, I really don't care about the stacky buttress, but it tells me one thing. There's got to be a wet spot, and regardless of uh, stacky buttress or not, I better take care of that uh, wet spot because sooner or later I have a building problem that the building is being eaten up and wood is going to disappear. So that, that is, that is the, 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 the difficulty when we are working on that indoor environment. Yeah, we are not in a factory where there are healthy people. We are looking at an environment in which we have infants and 100-year-old people, and we've got to take care of it. And that makes it very, very difficult. Uh, John, any, any final comments from you? Well, just to say that's an excellent point that was just raised. Uh, and that's one thing that we need to kind of look to the researchers to perhaps help us out on those issues. I agree. And I would say that maybe, um, maybe, and I'm not sure if this is, I'm not that familiar with the testing on green buildings, but it seems to me that you should do some kind of moisture checks if they're not already being done to make sure that materials have dried out properly. The concrete not only has cured, but is actually dried. Is that happening, John? Not really. 
So that might be something we could add as a, a final step in there. Well, it sounds like we've got our work cut out for us. And uh, what I'd like to do at this point is say thank you so much to John Tiffany for joining us. I hope we can bring you back for a later show and uh, get to some of these other questions we had on our list. And, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to do that, Joe. All right. Well, thank you. Maybe we'll get a little rhyme panel together one of these days and uh, put a subject on the board and start to talk about it. I also want to thank Mr. Glenn Fellman for the IE Connections What's News, the wingman, Chris Boisel, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, but most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. And before we go, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors one more time, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again, most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners and those of you that uh, chatted in and joined us online. I really appreciate that. hope to see you all back here next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 